Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to the webinar for the Federal Society Federalism and Separation of Powers group. Uh, my name is Mike Bailey. I am the general counsel at the Arizona Chamber of Commerce. And we are here today with uh, the general counsel from Governor Ducey's office here in Arizona, uh, Annie Foster. Annie uh, is an excellent attorney, is the general counsel at Governor Ducey's office. Prior to that, she was the general counsel for uh, the Arizona Department of Public Safety and had been an assistant attorney general for a number of years too, a graduate of Gonzaga Law School. I'm gonna turn it over to Annie momentarily to introduce the lawsuit that we're talking about today. But first I, I figured for those who might not be uh, viewing from a local area or even from anywhere other than the East Coast, give you a little sense of the state of Arizona in its relations to uh, the COVID and protocols and all that kind of thing that we've heard so much about uh, over the past two years. We'll say uh, we started out like everybody else early on back in March, uh, April of 2020, not knowing what was coming. Uh, you know, we had a very brief period of what we call what everybody called a lockdown where nobody was going out and most things were closed and that kind of thing. But that lasted only a week or so. Uh, following up on that, we had our first real wave of COVID in late June and July of 2020. After that wave, as we got into the school year in the fall, uh, everything pretty much in Arizona returned to normal. There, over, over the course of a few weeks, months, the masking seemed to end. And by the end of that fall and the end of that year in 2020, uh, there was not much going on here different from what had been going on before. No masking, no limitations on uh, who could be in restaurants and that kind of thing, numbers, except in a couple areas. We had a couple cities, uh, local jurisdictions that, you know, wanted to retain their masking requirements, sometimes in violation of state law. And uh, also the schools. Of course, the schools were always a problem, as they were everywhere, uh, insisting on masking children if they were having in-person school at all. And so in kind of that context, the legislature, I apologize to you, I was supposed to turn that off. The legislature, uh, you know, got together and, and set some rules that would apply statewide, including that schools may not require, this is in, uh, now the spring of 21, the schools may not require children to wear masks in schools. A couple defiant schools stood up and there was also, I should add, an executive order to the same effect prior to the law where the governor said no masking in schools and some districts just would not comply with that. So it was in that context that when the uh, ARPA came through and we found out that billions of dollars would be coming through Arizona, either through the federal departments themselves directly to Arizonans and local communities or through the state, some additional actions were taken with relation to the way we would do grants for the state portion of the money. And uh, Annie, uh, welcome. I will let you take it from there. Thank you, Mike, so much. I, I think you teed that up uh, uh, very well um, as to exactly what was going on here in Arizona, um, you know, and, and what the impetus of this this was. Uh, I, I do just want to add a, a few more facts there in, in that, you know, the federal government has provided a lot of money for relief um, for in relation to COVID. And what that means and, and what I mean by that is that, you know, some of that relief is to address COVID specific recovery, right? It, it's to go to hospitals and healthcare. Um, other relief is meant more towards um, e the economic recovery because obviously COVID had a, a very extensive impact on um, our economy and um, people getting back to work 
start getting back to school. And so uh, kind of one of the first things um, that that applies here and and that I would be remiss if I didn't talk about is that as part of that, the federal government, you know, issued funding to schools and and there's going to be a theme here. And that's why I bring this up is when they issued that initial funding, it's called um, elementary and secondary school emergency relief or ESSER funds. Those funds, um, you know, were scheduled to go to schools. The government issued, the federal government issued some guidelines as to, you know, what um, the calculation was going to be as to how much money schools got. And the state of Arizona took that guidance. We told schools what, how much money they were going to be distributed. And um, around the time we got ready to distribute them, the federal government changed the rules. And there were some schools that got more money than others. And this created issues for our state and our schools in our state, obviously. Um, so with that, the governor announced the Education Plus Up program using ARPA funding. We set up a program that basically made equal all of those um, schools that were not held um, equal in under the ESSER program. So that's the first program that um, kind of comes into play with this lawsuit. And then the, the second program that uh, the governor initiated, it was meant to provide relief to families because we were, as Mike mentioned, as you mentioned, Mike, we were having issues with schools shutting down and parents um, had already spent over a year educating, homeschooling their children for what they're paying their tax dollars for. And um, they were in need of getting back to work. They were in need of supporting themselves and they needed to make sure that their kids had a place to go, whether it be after school programs or transportation. Um, we saw here in Arizona, a lot of schools, a lot of students and, and families changing schools. Um, school choice became a major topic here in the state of of Arizona because parents realized that they could move to different schools who offered uh, what they were looking for and what worked for their family. Um, and so with that, um, again, ARPA funds were used and Arizona instituted the Educational Recovery Benefit Program. Um, and this, this program was put into place. And so both of these programs operated and um, there was a, a state law that prohibited masking, but we had schools that said they weren't going to follow that um, and they were going to do whatever they wanted. So there was a stipulation as part of these grant programs that, you know, they had to comply with state law and um, we went forward. Well, um, a few months into the school year in October, we received a, a letter from the Treasury Department stating that our programs did not comply with their guidance, which had been issued in May and our programs had been set up after the issuances of, of those regulations um, and were in total compliance. And they said they had concerns and that they did not comply um, because of the masking prohibitions. And, and I want to be clear here, it was a masking prohibition on the school. So parents, students, they could make the determination that at school it was safe for their family. They wanted to, to wear a mask in school. That was totally allowed. This was just making sure that students weren't being prevented from going to school because they had an issue with wearing a mask. Um, and there, there, I'm not gonna go into a lot of details there, but there are a lot of issues with children wearing masks and how it affects learning, um, as well as the behavioral issues that can come from that. You know, what happens when kids refuse to wear masks? Are, are they gonna get kicked out of school for that? Um, there's a lot of issues surrounding that as well. So Treasury sent us this letter um, and asked for a response within 30 days. Uh, the governor and his team did respond to that letter um, within 30 days and um, laid out the case as to why our programs were in compliance. And we didn't hear anything further until the beginning of January, um, one week after 
the final rule was issued by Treasury, which specifically stated that uh, states could not use these funds um, or as a stipulation that if they were using the funds, they had to make sure that um, they weren't used in a way that took away from the mitigation efforts that CDC was requiring um, to combat COVID-19. Um, which, by the way, they also didn't really ever give any um, legal justification as to their position. They just it was sort of like an edict, like we don't believe it complies and therefore you need to remediate this um, or there will be consequences. So fast forward to January, we get a letter a week after the final rule is is implemented. And they tell us that if we don't remediate these programs, in other words, if we don't take them, um, take out the masking prohibition, if we don't change them, which again, they didn't provide much detail for that, not only were there administrative remedies that they could take, but they would not be providing the state with the second round of ARPA funds. So under statute, under the federal statute that started the ARPA program, uh, there are, are two, um, there, there the Treasury is able to provide installment payments basically for ARPA funds. And um, and so we had gotten the first one already, but we have still not gotten the second as with most states. And I, I think we're not expecting that until closer to May. But basically, they, they threatened that not only were we subject to them taking back the money that we had already see, received, which, by the way, all of that money is what they were threatening, not just the money spent on these programs. They were also threatening to take away or to not provide us with the statutorily appropriated money um, that we were due. So with that, the governor um, said enough is enough. And he um, said he needed to protect the state of Arizona um, and the state of Arizona's interest in these funds and just stand up to the overreach that was occurring. Again, it wasn't like we just filed this um, out of nowhere. Um, there had been some back and forth and, and um, we had tried to comply. And so as the chief executive of Arizona, um, he's very attuned to separation of powers and staying in his lane and felt that the action of the treasury uh, was clearly out of bounds. And so we went to court and in going to court, um, you know, we filed this complaint on the 21st of January. And we alleged we alleged several things. We alleged a violation of the Admin Procedures Act, um, basically that the final rule exceeded their statutory authority. We alleged um, a violation of the APA in that their their action was arbitrary and capricious and a discretion abuse of discretion. We argued that uh, it's a violation of the spending clause, what they're trying to do, and a violation of the non-delegation doctrine. And um, all of these kind of sum up into a real quick sort of argument in that the statute is very clear. It says that um, these funds can be used for you know, COVID recovery efforts, the scope of the statute says it's for fiscal recovery, not any kind of medical, you know, or health recovery, and that the funds can be used for economic recovery. And so much so that in the, the interim rule and the final rule, Treasury has also said that education uh, funding and, and use for education purposes is within the economic recovery piece um, because schools and students were um, disproportionately affected by COVID um, and, you know, students have fallen behind, which I think we all know. I mean, I, there's plenty of studies that have gone on and shown that that kids have really fallen behind during COVID. So um, those are the basis of our lawsuit. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it, it's pretty cut and dry, quite frankly, but happy to answer your questions, Mike. I, I know you have some questions for me. It's interesting, uh, I think, probably to all of us that uh, these issues have become 
so political when it really doesn't make any sense in any kind of principled direction one way or the other. Maybe with some mandates, there's some philosophical uh, underpinnings to it, but uh, people just get get out of control. You know, the the matter was called to the attention of Treasury, of our program in the first place, by one of our congressmen writing a uh, letter that I'll share momentarily, but uh, to, to do a little Seinfeld take here, it was uh, kind of like Kramer going to the uh, dentist, he let the epithets fly, but it was just an attack on the governor that uh, frankly was kind of unhinged. So let's take a look at some of what was uh, said here when we got to the governor, it's a dear Secretary Yellen, and this is from August of 2021 before any response from the Department of Treasury, but after the interim final rule was issued. And so it starts out, the governor in Ducey intends to use these funds to carry out a science denying mission and put Arizona children in greater danger, punitively denying resources to school. And then they go on to say, you know, these are these are funds aren't intended to undercut scientific research for purely partisan ideological priorities. So this is the environment into which you're you're walking. And it feels like there's almost, you know, kind of no hope. I remember if, if I can indulge in a short story of my freshman year of college, I had what I what I something unfair happened to me. It's meaningless now, of course, but I've never been able to get out of my head because it seemed unfair. And we had a small class, maybe five students with uh, an adjunct professor, some kind of business thing. I don't remember what the name of the class was, but we had to submit a paper and, you know, we'd taken some subject matter prior to submitting the paper. And uh, I did something in my paper that he didn't like. And for the sake of argument, let's say it's used too much alliteration or whatever. That wasn't what it was. But after reading the paper, he took his standard, you know, I'm going to grade this on substance, on writing and on a third thing. And instead of, you know, using the normal three categories for grading, he created a fourth category, which was, is there too much use of alliteration? And so rather than docking me just for the few points that might have been expected, maybe, even though we'd never talked about it, a whole new category was created and it just wasn't fair. And it's stuck with me to this day and for some reason. I wish it didn't. But this feels exactly like that, where we issue some interim guidance, uh, interim rule, and you're complying with it perfectly well. And then at the end, they say, oh, no, we're going to come back and not only... Are we going to change the rule just on the basis of what we saw that you did that we didn't like within the rule, but we're also going to claim we can get the money back from it. So it is out of that that all of the uh, claims arise. Let, let me ask you a little more specific question, though, about the nature of the claim. So, uh, you know, in my case with the with the paper that was due, if the teacher had warned us before, don't use alliteration or told you you're going to be graded on how much, you know, that that kind of thing would seem fair then, even if the substantive stuff was still off. But it was the process of deciding afterwards that I'm going to add that as a category. Same thing in this case. Do you have any claims that you're bringing that are purely process related as opposed to substance? Uh, in other words, regardless of maybe what the substance of the rule is the fact that the department skipped notice and comment that they went straight to an interim final rule and then made this change on the basis of one state program are there any purely procedural claims you're bringing under the apa so at, at this point no um you know it, it's it's really about what they included in the in the rule and and what they 
you know, their authority to do so. So they did, I, I will say they did go through, you know, sort of a, a comment period and, and, um, you know, they, they had those opportunities, you know, to, um, to talk about, uh, you know, people had the opportunity to understand what was going on, even though it was an expedited process. And so at this point, no, I, I think, you know, if, if we come up and, and find something um, in the meantime, that they did do something incorrectly, you know, there, there potentially be a, a place to amend the complaint. But at this point, we're solely just looking at the law, right? And, and you know, as, as FedSoc members, you know, we, we sort of talk about textualism all the time, but I mean, this is a clear case of looking at what the text of the statute says and them just saying, okay, well, we're just going to do what we want to do. So, um, and, and just, you know, in, in, ter- in talking about the arbitrary and capriciousness of, of what they're threatening the state of Arizona with, I, I would just point out that in their January letter where they cite the interim final rule and, and, and say that we're in violation of that rule, they also make a mention they fail to mention actually that that rule doesn't even go into place until April 1st of 2022. So they are taking a a rule that's not even in effect yet and retroactively applying it, um, which again is an abuse of discretion. So most of it um, boils down to the, the language of the statute and, and, you know, what they're, trying to accomplish by exceeding the authority that has been delegated to them um, from Congress. Let's take a look at the statute. So this is a, a ARPA as a whole is, you know, nearly 250 pages long. Uh, and of course is dealing with, you know, a best estimate nearly $2 trillion that, are being added to various uses here. And then there is this small section, this small little slice of it. So we have this, you know, $2 trillion overall package. A lot of it goes to various federal departments, which in turn through the federal department goes to state and local interests. There's a small slice of it of about 4.2 billion uh, for Arizona. 4.2 4.2 billion, but it was, you know, what was the total number on the on the uh, state and local fiscal relief package? Yeah, I, the I know that what we got was um, I think it was a total of like some trillion. I, I forget how much that was, and I don't have it in front of me right now. But um, it, it was substantial because. It, Arizona's portion of it was $4 billion and every state got um, a certain amount. So, so with, with respect to the, the package on the state and local fiscal relief of which we got the four here in Arizona out of the 242 page total ARPA bill, these few lines are the sections we're fighting over basically four general provisions on the use of funds and two restrictions. And the restrictions are what, Annie, in the statute? So um, the restriction, and, and I'll just really speak to the one that, that we're looking at. It, it's under subsection A there that you've highlighted. It says to respond to the public health emergency with respect to coronavirus disease 2019 and or its negative economic impacts And then it lists out several things. There are other things like, you know, uh, essential workers and, um, you know, government services um, and, you know, other investments in infrastructure. So, um, you know, from that perspective, it's it's extremely broad. And, And I would actually also point out that at the very beginning of the statute, I believe it is. It, it specifically talks about the scope of ARPA and the scope of ARPA is to address 
COVID fiscal recovery. So it's it's not like, you know, they they said somewhere else in the statute that these funds should be used for public health purposes. It was very clear. And, you know, when you talk about Representative Stanton's letter, okay, you know, he he can, you know, speak about the governor and and you know sort of throw out all of these political things. But bottom line, you know, he did vote on this bill and and it's assumed that he knew what the language in the bill was and and what exactly it allowed for. And even if his intent was not what it is, again, we're all FedSoc members, very familiar with textualism and originalism. Um, all of the language in the statute makes it perfectly clear what the purpose was and you know, there are 534 other members of Congress who probably all had different intents on what they thought this might have said. Um, but again, the words are what matters. And the fact that, you know, even if the federal government wants to argue that it's, you know, recovery from COVID-19 in subsection A, there is an or there that talks about economic recovery. Um, and, and you have the federal government in and of itself saying that economic recovery includes um, education purposes. So from that perspective, you know, I think I think uh, it, it's just been interesting to, to see how people read statutes. And I would also just add how important it is. You know, we've talked on a lot of these webinars that FedSoc um, supports and, and puts on. We talk about textualism, we talk about the judiciary and, and following textualism and originalism, but it's just as important for those councils that are working within agencies in the executive branch to understand that concept and how important it is. And it's it's doubly important for those people that are um, working in these fields you know, to make sure that you're following the law. Separation of powers isn't just a concept. It's a it's a thing that, you know, is necessary to ensure that our government works the way that it does. So, uh, as you know, I mean, clearly it, it's talking about fiscal relief. It does uh, in the subsection C1A talk about the ability to directly address you know, health issues related to coronavirus and remediate actual effects of the virus and that kind of thing. But it's certainly non-exclusive uh, and it certainly gives you other purely fiscal approaches that you can take to recover from the fiscal damage that was incidental to everything that happened. And so let's let's take a look at that very first letter they sent out of Treasury to you folks in October you know, suggesting that you uh, have not complied with the statute or the interim rule for the state and local fiscal recovery package. And uh, it's notable, I think, that they they cite two portions of the interim final rule as their authority. And that is essentially the, the closest thing to an actual authority that they can cite in the letter. And they're talking about uh, 86 Federal Register 26786 and page 26790. You address this in your complaint, but what is the problem? I mean, they do in those sections talk about, you know, health issues. Why does that not hurt you? Well, I think it doesn't hurt us because, um, you know, again, the rule has to be based in their statutory authority. They they can't just make something up. And and this is also gets into the spending clause claim. Right. Because um, Congress appropriates money and, and they do so unambiguously. And basically, Treasury has taken Congress's language and said, we're not going to give you the money without you complying with all of these other things. And, and, and 
the other thing I would point to that citation that they use is not even part of a rule. It's part of their sort of findings and background that they use. Um, so if they're trying to make us comply with a rule, you actually have to put it in a rule, not in the findings and background. So from that perspective, you can cite all you want, um, you know, to other things as to your reasoning, but it has to be based in statute. It has to be based in the law and, um, what they're citing is all it is, is, um, you know, background that they're trying to cite to prove their case and support their case. But if you actually look at those provisions, it, it doesn't really cite what they claim it does um, or it doesn't support what they claim it does. And I'm not going to dispute that the CDC has, you know, put out that guidance. But what I will say is that that guidance the, the, the ARPA funding is not contingent on that guidance. Right. And the, the specific sections they cited very clearly on their face related to that section under subsection, you know, C1A, I think it was C2A, where they talked about addressing the healthcare consequences and they are making, giving examples of appropriate uses uh, on how we can address the healthcare consequences, but that was not to the exclusion of all other things. So what, what about the argument? So you, you have the, the non-delegation argument because we have that very broad statute and even uh, the Treasury Department in, in the rules interim and the final uh, note that it is broad and it can be used in a variety of ways. And even in their examples, they give a variety of ways. Now, although the subsections, those brief subsections we looked at relating to the uh, SLFRF, provisions didn't specifically go at public health and certainly not at the notion of doing something that is not in the interest of public health, which they, in their contention, is the taking the mask off the children. But throughout the, you know, many of the other 240 pages of the bill that relate to how the, the federal government, the department, uh, you know, health, education, how they are directly spending their money. There are a number of health provisions in those sections. Does, does the overall theme of the, uh, of the act as a whole in the 240 pages that we are, you know, have a, have a goal of mitigating COVID, not just financially, but actually mitigating COVID itself, does that hurt you or help you in any way with respect to your argument that the, that the, 4.2 billion to Arizona and SL FRF funds also might have that intent behind them. So I, I'm not sure whether it helps or hurts us. I, I would argue it, it helps us actually. Um, I do expect that's what the federal government will argue is that, um, you know, the, the overall bill is meant to address these things. Um, but I, I think it begins with the fact that, you know, it's, and, and we use it, we call it slurf funds, um, although it doesn't hit all that, the letters necessarily, but, you know, it's state and local fiscal recovery fund. That is the title of the, the statute. That is the, the name of the program. And so in, in nowhere does it talk about, you know, public health. It talks about fiscal recovery. And that's why I went back to the scope. If, if they had said that, in light of you know covid we need to make sure that as we're you know pursuing fiscal recovery we put stipulations on this that you not only use these funds for fiscal recovery but you do so with consideration of the public health consequences we'd probably be in a different scenario but you know when you talk about the non-delegation doctrine you have to have an intelligible principle well the only intelligible principle is that these monies have been appropriated to the states for these reasons and those reasons are so broad that i think it's going to be really hard for treasury to argue that you know 
the overall bill in other areas addressed public health issues because Congress, it's it's believed that Congress knew what it was doing. And if it intended them to have public health um, consequences tied to, tied to their appropriation, they would have said that in that section of statute because they did say it in other sections of statute. So um, to answer your question, I guess I think it helps. Um, that would be my impression. But I do think that probably will be the argument that the federal government tries to make is that, you know, it is COVID and, and um, you know, this is what the the Congress would never have intended, you know, to issue these funds with the thought that it could be used for something adverse to COVID. But the other fallacy in that argument is going to be, the CDC previously had identified industries that were supposedly a threat to public health during the peak of COVID, correct? Right. Um, they said that gyms should be shut down. They said that, you know, you shouldn't eat at buffets and, you know, um, you know, bars should be shut down, all of these things. Well, if that's the case, these monies are meant for fiscal recovery and include one of the inclusive categories is hospitality. So if you're including those portions, but yet, you know, several months ago, CDC said it wasn't safe. Well, then how can you use those funds for fiscal recovery in those industries now? So I don't think that that argument will hold water. Um, but as we all know, you never know what a judge is going to do. Sure. So let's talk a little bit more about the process issue, I think. And, you know, we've generally talked about changing the rule at the end and then coming back and saying you didn't comply. We've talked about the fact that the uh, rule, you know, really was without authority in the delegation from Congress by the act. Uh, but there's some more to the process that strikes me as a little odd that it feels mostly procedural to me, but it could be, uh, you know, the creation of, of simply a, a claim for, you know, arbitrary enforcement or rulemaking, I guess. So remember, it was the end of August when the congressman first raised the issue. And it was October 5th uh, when the department wrote the first letter to the governor indicating that this is a problem. Uh, and yet... After October 5th, but before the, the final rule was released, the department sent out, first of all, a guidance that said, look, you and presumably we, the department, are bound, just to be clear, you are bound by this interim final rule in your use of these funds. And again, the interim final rule did not address the issue that, that is now being raised at all. Uh, Treasury's interim final rules details your compliance responsibilities and it provides additional information on eligible and restricted uses. This is after they've raised it, but at this point, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there have still been no, uh, other than in a letter saying we don't really think that applies, no formal restrictions that say you can't have anything relating to masking, have there? No. No. Well, I mean, the interim final rule is out there. It doesn't go into effect until April 1. Um, and again, the final, the final rule, you mean? Yes. Yes. Still not in effect, but this is after the interim final rule. Which said nothing about masking. Which said nothing about it. So they wrote you a letter and then they still, you know, later issued guidance that says that's the rule, that the rule that says nothing about masking is the one that applies. And then after that, uh, they issue a, a uh, second, and I'm feeling, oh, there it is, uh, uh, an explainer, what they call an explainer, uh, which says until Treasury adopts the final rule, this was sometime maybe September-ish, I think, but uh, actually this, was, this came before, until Treasury adopts the final rule, and it becomes effective, meaning April of 2022, uh, the interim final rule is binding and effective. And so, you know, I, uh, this, is, this is part of your argument. In criminal law, we would call it ex post facto, but right. how, do you, how do you exactly frame it 
in this case where they're trying to hold you to a standard that does not yet exist? Um, well, it, it's there's some case law on it, and I'm sorry, but it's escaping me right now that that we found that that talks about this that that you can't you know retroactively you know go back and apply rules after the fact, and and that's what they're trying to do, and um, you know Congress. Um, can only apply things retroactively if it's specific in the statute. There's clearly no language in the statute that says, you know, that treasure, first of all, you know, we've already established that, you know, the, the statute doesn't support what they've done in the first place in this final rule, but above and beyond that, um, there's no place in the statute that says that, um, you know, Treasury can apply their rules retroactively. Um, and so to, to that point, though, one of the biggest concerns, again, which sparked the, the reason why we, we filed this lawsuit is because not only are they trying to apply the rules retroactively, but in order to get that second round of funding, the state is going to have to sign off saying that it just exactly what you showed saying that we will comply with the final rule, which again, we don't believe there is statutory authority for. So, you know, we need to proactively get a court ruling saying that what they have done is an abuse of discretion and arbitrary and capricious, because if, if we don't get that, then we're going to have to, you know, contractually sign an agreement that, has problems with it and that we will potentially be bound by. So the state is really put in a no-win situation um, with the treasury right now as to, you know, what it does about these funds going forward, because, you know, on one hand, there and that's a whole other issue that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet, but, you know, they're threatening to not distribute funds and, recoup all of the funds that they've paid us. But under the statute, the only amount of money that they're able to recoup is the money that they has that is determined to have been um, spent contrary to the authority. So right now, that amount is nowhere near the amount that they're alleging um, you know, that we would have to pay back um, because although we appropriated um, or we set aside $173 million for these two programs, um, that amount has not gone out. I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head how much has actually gone out. I know I have that here somewhere. I think at this point, only 322,000 has gone up on, gone out on the educational recovery benefit program. And then the whole 163 million has been um, set aside for the education plus up. So at the most, that's all that they could recoup um, at this point, but yet they're saying not only do we have to give it all back, but we can't get, you know, the funding in the future. So um, I think there's a lot of issues there. Well, that, that is, as you point out, I mean, it's a lot of money uh, any way you slice it, but it's not something that's going to break the federal government or break the state. Now, the, the uh, NFIB case that, that we recently had come down from the court relating to other mandates, in that case, the vaccine mandate on, on employers and workers, uh, the court used the major questions doctrine to address the delegation in that case. And, and the court noted that this doctrine applies where there's a question of vast economic and political significance. In our case, we're, you know, even in education, uh, our schools directly have already gotten 2.5 billion from the ESSER programs. And, and out of our 4.2 billion, we're talking about $163 million in addition to the ERB program. But, you know, it's it's a contextual drop in the bucket. You know, it's a point or two, a percent or two of the total money we're talking about, if that. So hard to, uh, you know, push that into a major question. How does the the non-delegation doctrine on which you base your claims differ? And, and what do you do you think you'll successfully be able to show? Well, I, I think 
one one thing that I just point out is is you know we're talking about an intelligible principle here, right? What Congress laid out it was a very broad statute, and if there is some kind of delegation um, to an agency, you know that delegation has to be based on an intelligible principle, and and we don't have that here as to what Treasury is trying to do. Um, I, I will tell you because we've looked at this, you know, are are there things that Treasury, for instance, um, you know, has the ability to monitor fraud and and those types of things when you look at their enabling statutes under the Department of Treasury, of course, right? But even with that, it doesn't give them blanket authority to just say, well, we don't like the way that you are spending the money that Congress appropriated you. And so we get to come in and change that. Um, In terms of the major questions, I I would just say, I, I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a broader issue. Um, It is a substantial issue when you have an executive agency that's coming in and taking what Congress dictated and prescribed, and they are putting additional um, uh, stipulations on how that money can receive, be received. I think that's a problem. And, you know, there've been a couple of cases um, throughout the country. I know uh, General Brnovich here in Arizona filed a case. I know that um, Kentucky, Tennessee, um, and one other state came together and filed a a lawsuit um, against Treasury on the tax principle that's in in this that, that prevents, you know, states from giving tax cuts. That's a little bit of a different issue there because, you know, and some people have questioned me, like, how is that not the same case as what you're arguing? Well, in that case, it was all about the language of the actual statute and and what, you know, the statute was saying. There were some guidance and, and um, rules that we were waiting for before those lawsuits got filed um, from Treasury, but... Uh, you know, that statute had a little bit different. The arguments there were a little bit different than here, where it is based on statutory language. But what we're talking about is them so super exceeding something. And oh, by the way, there is an actual harm, because I know in some of those cases, there have been questions about standing and ripeness that, um, you know, have kind of held them up a little bit. We're we're getting uh, toward the end of our time. So let me ask you just one or two more questions and then we'll see if uh, there are any questions from uh, those who may still be watching us at this point. (laughs) Uh, Ask you one question going back to the uh, statutory language. uh, I'm just curious because I haven't been, of course, uh, privy to all of the conversations back and forth between the, the Arizona governor's office and the Department of Treasury, but it does seem the the statutory, uh, one of the specific mentions they make in this broad statute is in C1B. We were talking about A A before, but B talks about responding to workers performing essential work during the emergency and uh, providing money either directly to them or to their employers uh, that have eligible workers who perform essential work. It seems to me there's an argument to say, look, you know, the masking requirement, we're never going to agree on, uh, you know, whatever somebody's science says on whether masks work or not. It's pretty much said in some people's mind at this point. But clearly, if you are a school that has, and I mean, it's clearly, we, I think we can also agree it's better for the children to not have to wear masks it's, if there's any danger for anyone in there it's not more than negligible it's it's the teachers and so this is why the, the teachers union operation has been so involved in this with the school board business of the department of justice etc but uh if we have a school where for the benefit of the children these teachers and this school this district in some cases have you know, not required masking, uh, that these essential workers, these teachers in those districts have exposed themselves to some kind of danger over the course of this. And that's why we're uh, especially concentrating on them rather than 
you know, to control them in any way. Is that a discussion that's come up at all? Um, we have not had that discussion. I think it's an interesting concept, um, but we have not had that discussion. I know that there's, you know, when we talk about funding, I mean, there's lots more funding that has gone to schools that is not part of this discussion. Um, there's there's funding that goes directly um, through the Department of Ed to schools. Um, and so we, we haven't had that discussion, but it's an interesting concept. Well, that's right. And I, I think we noted it, but it can't hurt to reiterate it that uh, again 2.5 billion went out through the department of you know, same thing ARPA but through the department of education directly to the schools instead of passing through uh, the state executive on the way through and Governor Ducey's program with this uh, fiscal relief money was directed at schools that really were underpaid uh, received less than 1800 per student in the Escher distribution. So these are all schools that were on the low end of, of whatever else. And in the case of the, of the funding to parents to give them some options, that of course was limited to low income families that really right. without that funding wouldn't have a choice to find what they think is best for their kids. And for any state as Arizona is that prides itself on the, uh, the just great amount of school choice we have here that makes perfect sense. So, well, well, do you have anything else to add before we? I, I I would just add on that point. You know, I, I mean, the the one thing that that is shocking here is that, um, you know. On one hand, the federal government is claiming that title, under ESSER, Title I schools should get more money. That That's kind of what happened here. And those are the schools that, you know, have a disproportionate number of low-income children. Um, but the, the kids that have the most to gain by school choice are those same kids. And, um, but yet, you know, they're basically saying, no, you need to send them to the Title I schools, which sometimes are not performing schools and they're taking away that choice. And, and I think that shouldn't be lost here. Well, thank you. I, I uh, we'll see if there's any, if anybody does have any questions, now would be the time to put one in the question and answer uh, box there. But if, uh, if not, thank you all for your time. And Evelyn has come back on. So what do you, do you think? Do we wrap it up or take a minute? I think that if the two of you are ready to wrap it up, then we can wrap it up for this afternoon. It was a great presentation. Oh, we got a question. Oh, oh. no. <laughs> questions. No questions. <laughs> I think you answered everyone's questions preemptively. Yeah, I would just say thank you, Mike. Like you were, you were, uh, your questions were really great. So I appreciate it. Well, thanks for taking the time, uh, Annie. And we'll, we'll certainly be watching the case closely from, from here on out. For so, sure. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Thank you both. And on behalf of the Federalist Society, thank you to our speaker and our moderator for their time this afternoon. Thank you to our audience for tuning in and participating. And if you, if the attendees have any questions or comments, please send those to info at fed-soc.org and we welcome questions and comments. Um, please keep an eye on the website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. And with that, we are adjourned. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.